Welcome. The Leadership Lesson Podcast inspires leadership growth in everyone. We have enthralling conversations with top leaders in order to provide you with life-changing lessons. My name is Caleb Nichols. I'm a speaker, a pastor, and a family man. My hope is to inspire spiritual depth and leadership growth in you. I love to sit down with leaders from a variety of fields, hear their personal stories and leadership experiences. This creates the podcast. Enjoy. All right, we have, uh, welcome to the podcast, everyone. We have Jim Penman here, who's the founder and CEO of Jim's Group. Uh, apparently started with $24 in 1982. That was the year I was born, Jim. So yeah. that's exciting. And Jim's Mowing uh, has then become a fran franchised in 1989 and become the biggest franchiser in Australian history, I was reading, which, which is amazing, Jim. C can you tell okay. us the num numbers? Well, um, it's a bit hard to tell right now because so many suspended with lockdown, but we're about 4,400 or something like that. Yeah. Mind Fantastic. you, I have to say, to be fair, we might have the biggest numbers, but if you look at the actual turnover and profitability, I would think McDonald's is a bit better. <laughs> <laughs> but it's amazing what it has, has grown from uh, over all the years. So I actually have a pastor in my uh, church who has just started a Jim's Fencing franchise. Oh, wow, so. That's a good one. Lots of work. 60% on service. All we could do is more of him. We got one particular guy who just started. He wrote to me in his first two months, he's done $70,000, $70,000 turnover. And, and he's probably wow. probably can't find enough workers. So he's, yeah, wow. He's raking it in. Fencing is great. So, so why do you get so many leads and, and why aren't you able to fill them? Well, basically because, because, um, we just can't. We, we just can't sign enough fences. It seems to be hard to get people to do it. It's, it's a great trade. It's healthy outdoor work. It's very profitable. Stacks of work. Easy to build a major business. I would say it's a fantastic business to to get involved in. Uh, and also, they tend to get a lot of referrals because what happens is you put up a fence. You get you get somebody to fence their yard three sides. And then you've got three or four neighbours all with bad fences. So, and, and one good one. So <laughs> they had to, to go down the street. Yeah. <laughs> and, and what about lawn, Jim? Do, do, do you love lawn or is, uh, do you get asked that much because it's all started with Jim's mowing or uh, have you forgotten about lawn now and you're onto many other things? No, no, I, my heart still bleeds green as they, as they say. So, um, <laughs> I actually actually am off later today to spend some time on working on my farm. I, I, just working physically outdoors, which is to me is fun. That's what I used to do. I used to do it as a student job because it was um, that was in the back in the seventies. Um, yeah. Because it was a way of making money and quite good money for a student, and, and it got me outside and physical exercise and green and trees and grass and stuff. So I like the kind of stuff. Yeah. That's fantastic. Nearly, nearly half of our franchisees are still mowing. It's it's. We've got just under 2,000, I think, who are in the mowing division. So the other divisions are actually growing faster, but mowing is still growing and it's going well. Wow. We, I, right now down the road, there's a Jim's mowing guy, three houses down doing the uh, my neighbour's lawn. So it is amazing how you, you see it everywhere. So it's an incredible, incredible story. Can you tell us a little bit about how you started and how it got going and... Uh, yeah, what, what, what makes you tick, Jim? What, what, why did you get this uh, business going? Why did you turn it into franchising? I'd love to hear a bit of the background. Well, I'm more the accidental entrepreneur than anything else. I, I always intended to be an academic um, mm -hmm. to research into understanding the rise and fall of civilizations and this kind of thing. So that, that was my whole focus. Um, gardening and then mowing was my student job. But it's really all that happened is, in actual fact, um, yeah, what happened in, in, in 1982 was that I got to a stage where it was clear that I had no possibility of an academic career because to be an academic, because my field was basically history, you have to be focused on one particular area. You have to be the world's expert, so on, say, the world of the roses, which isn't mm. difficult. But, I mean, that's how they do it. Now, I was interested in not only just not, one country at one period of time, but not even one country and not even, not even, I wanted to study multiple countries across the world. And not only that, but looking at cross-cultural anthropology and zoology and, and genetics and all kinds of things. It just got this 
So I was wildly unspecialized, and that was just absolutely fatal. There was no possible way I could ever get any kind of academic career. So basically, being pretty well broke at the time and deeply in debt and everything else, I just decided to start mowing lawns full time in 1982. It was kind of... And the idea always was that one day I would have enough money somehow to be able to fund my research institute, which which we're currently doing. Actually, I've written the book, which is this one here, which I'm in the process of updating now with recent research. We're spending a couple of million dollars a year on a research program into epigenetics and and, um, biochemistry and all kinds of things, which which is based on on these kinds of ideas. So that was always my goal, not, not making money for its own sake, making money so I could do the research, which was what I wanted in the 70s. So many people would say you've been very successful in making money in order to do what you want to do. So (laughs) I'd love to get into the biohistory maybe a little bit later in our conversation. I I find that fascinating as well. So it all started off with actual the desire to to research uh, and mowing lawns was a means to an end, but it's something that just grew. Mm. And as you said, an accidental... uh, success so what 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 do you think really gave jim's mowing or jim's group the success what was it that you did that was different to others um look a lot of it's got to do with my own personal emotional drivers um which people underestimate in the way they look at these things first of all i had no comprehension when i first started that mowing was going to be the thing I thought it was just something to get on with and try to find something else. And I tried lots of different things. I tried um, Amway, for example. That wasn't very successful. I tried, um, I had a mower shop at one stage. I had a computer business. I've I've had trade exchanges. I've done all kinds of different things. So in in a sense, most of the things I've tried have been abysmal failures. I I just happened to have worked out quite well at one of them. Um, (laughs) So it, it took me a long time, even after the franchise, to figure out that this thing actually had some real legs behind it. So, but that's, that's kind of thing. But I've always had a very strong obsession with service, with doing okay. things well. Like when I was a mowing contractor, I had a really emotional attitude to, to wanting to make my customers happy. And, and I, I, I just felt appalled if I would let somebody down. I remember missing out on, on a couple of clients one time because of a mistake in my diary and just feeling so bad and so guilty. And I would just have a fanatical attitude to making the, the lawn perfect. You know, just mm. I was one of the first contractors in Australia to get a brush cutter because I just wanted the edges to be perfect. And then I would, I just can't understand how anybody can do an edge on a lawnmower job and leave one blade of grass. It, to me, it's like a gigantic pimple on the face of a beautiful <laughs> woman. I mean, it's, it's horrible. And, and so I had this emotional driver. And when I became, when I started the franchise, I, and bear in mind, again, I had no conception of what would happen. I, Really, basically, I used to have a business building up and selling lawn mowing rounds. And I was just going to keep on with that until something better came along. And then this rival came in, VIP, from Adelaide, and they had 250 franchisees. That was giant for me. They were, these were, these were, this was the, the gorilla in the room. I was, I, was, I was petrified. I thought these guys would crush me because they were so big and so well-funded and they had all these logos and nice offices and all kinds of really impressive stuff. So I just basically franchised in self-defense. And, and somebody asked me at the time when I first started, what, what do you think might happen in, 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 you know, if you're really successful? If it, and I said, look, I don't know if it's going to work, but if it does work out one day, I might have 100 franchisees. I actually said that at the time. So, wow. But, but I had a vision, Caleb, and this is, this is a really important point about it, that – I, I wanted my franchisees to become raving fans. And I thought, what mm. can I do to make my franchisees successful? How can I make them really love the system and want to stay with it and want to get their friends in it? I want to be a referral system. And, mm. and so I designed the contract to be um, really favourable to franchising in a way that no other franchise contract I ever heard of. And I had wow. arguments with lawyers for about nine months because they could not comprehend this attitude. They said, you're being too nice. You've got mm. to give yourself more power. And I said, mm. no, but if I was a franchisee, I wouldn't want somebody to have that. So I put all kinds of stuff in and says, you know, absolute right to territory, but you can work where you want. Your fees will be the same regardless of how many workers you put on, same base mm. fee. Um, we cannot take regular clients off you without your consent. Um, mm. Stuff like that, really crazy things. 
and they said to me, the lawyer said to me this is okay but you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna wise up with time i didn't i did the opposite actually over the time i put more powers for my franchisees i give them for example the right to change to a different franchisor the right to yeah. vote out the franchisor the right to veto changes to their own manual this is not there's nothing in the world like it mm. and and then the way we run it too the kind of support we tried to give the way we looked after people the the, the, the regular phone calls and stuff so i just kept on figuring out how can you make your customers into raving fans and my key customer as a franchisor is my franchisees yeah. and it kind of worked out better than i thought it would <laughs> surprisingly you've, you've touched on an amazing principle there jim mm -hmm. uh, of, of service of uh, putting others before yourself of being a leader and a businessman that actually opens doors for others rather than uses others to make some money or build some uh, power or, or, or reputation, and it's amazing that that principle is so powerful. But it, but but in some ways, it's uh, counterintuitive, isn't it? Well, people 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 who put money first don't tend to make the most money. That's my experience. I've just been finished reading a book um, by um, Dave Packard about Hewlett Packard and, and the way they thought about business and stuff, and it was very different to you know the money first kind of thing. Very long term, very focused on the welfare of their staff and their customers. Um, same with James Dyson, another book called Invention. I've just been, been listening to. I'm talking book. It's a wonderful book, and the same kind of mm -hmm. idea. You, you, I, I think putting money first is a really terrible idea. See, there's various principles in, in the way I run a business, which is very much um, based on, on the words of Jesus in the Gospels, which is, to me, the core of, of what I believe in. One crucial thing is Jesus washing his disciples' feet. Now, that really is an amazing story and far more than we imagine from the current age because in those days, washing somebody's feet was something that a slave did. It was the lowest, most degrading job. Now, sometimes when you had a really, really high prestigious rabbi, the disciples might wash their his feet as a sign of respect. But Jesus washed his, his disciples' feet. It was totally revolutionary. It turned everything on its head. And that was... That was a staggering thing at the time. And and that principle, that principle that we serve, that I serve my franchisees, I serve their welfare. Even when I'm annoyed at them and I tell them you've got to give better service to customers, I do it because that's the way you can help your own business to work and everybody else's business to work and everybody to make money. It's not I'm not against you, I'm I'm in favor of you. So so even when I'm tough on them, it's for their sake. So and the other and the other the other sayings that are very much meaning for me would be the parable of the talents i believe god gives yep. us certain abilities and we're meant to use them and the other thing that i really think about a lot is what jesus said about about the, the wealthy he said it's 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 easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven mm. and i always had that in my mind that wealth is potentially very corrupting and it's yes. not something that's it's there to serve myself it's there to do the things that he's asked me to do in my life. Mm. Excellent. And so, so what is your relationship to money? How do you, uh, I, I assume you're fairly well off. Uh, I think you're worth <laughs> hundreds of millions of dollars, but so, so what is your relationship to money in that sense? How do you, how do you handle it? How do you not let it, I suppose, overtake you and corrupt you in that way? Well, the major thing is we live in a fairly, what you might call comfortable middle-class life. Um, I drive a, a car which probably worth about five thousand dollars. Currently splattered with mud because it goes up to my farm. So um, <laughs> we have somebody come in cleaning once a week. Basically, I do the washing up and stuff, take out the rubbish, and and, and you know, wife does the laundry. It's it's really our children have sort of theoretically know that we're rich, but have absolutely no feeling of it it's just nothing like what they see in, on tv about the lives the, the mansions yeah. and the, the servants <laughs> and i always fly coach in economy class and airplanes if I, I hate traveling anyway but just yeah i just don't believe that the wealth is there to be used for personal luxury i don't think it makes you happy anyway in fact in fact yeah. the best studies on on happiness show that the the best way to use money for to become happy is is the worst way is status buying mm. expensive clothes and cars and this stuff to make yourself that that's the worst experiences are somewhat better but the most best way according to scientific research to use money to make yourself happy is to give it away 
to something that you are personally involved in, which mm. in my case this is my research project. That mm. makes me happy. Giving having having the latest fancy car wouldn't do anything for me at all. Mm -hmm. Excellent. So you really see money as a tool to be used, not something to uh, uh, just make your life uh, a little bit fancier. Yeah, and I've made it clear to my kids. I've got ten children, and and they're not going to get much. A little bit of help mm. with housing when they when they want to have a family, just so they not not enough to pay for the kids, but just enough to get them a bit of a. They get the club market apart from that. They're on their own, and they're all doing well because they haven't mm. been brought up spoiled rich kids. They're not trust fund kids. They're they're good they're <laughs> with money. They, they, they've all got productive careers going. They're not the older ones anyway. So. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. I, I love it. I, I think you're preaching to the choir here, and especially when you're talking about Jesus washing feet, washing feet as a pastor, you're definitely mm -hmm. talking by language, which is great. What, what, do, do you go to church um, somewhere out your way? Yes, we go to a, a church called Life Ministries Centre in in, um, in Chenside Park near us. It's, it's basically related to my kids' school, which is what tends to happen with us oh, okay. time together. Yeah, we we can't haven't gone to church much lately because of the lockdowns, and, but. We miss it. I know. I know. It's been horrible, hasn't it? And there's a lot of controversy around that with the lockdowns. I've been getting messages from people in my congregation saying, oh, I don't know if we're going to be able to go back to church if we're not vaccinated, Pastor Caleb, and what are we going to do? And so what, what's your take on the whole COVID thing and how it relates to people? Um, well, I, I, as you may have heard, I'm fairly outspoken. I, I think the lockdown has been gracious in terms of knocking sold contractors down, not just my people, but there's tens of thousands across the country, maybe hundreds of thousands, lawnmowers, cleaners and stuff. If you're mm. in a job that doesn't require any form of contact with anybody, including clients, because you can get paid electronically, then why shut them down? Yeah. I think what they've done is absolutely shocking. And I've obviously made myself heard about that. I, I think it's, mm. it's just a complete neglect of some of the most vulnerable people in our society. Um, I have to say, too, in, in that sense, my own franchisees would be better off than most because they tend to be the elite. They're the ones that are making the most money. One of the things we do mm. tell our franchisees is don't compete on price. Always mm. try to be the most expensive um, mm. because we've actually got a massive amount of work. We've actually, about one third of our jobs are unserviced because there's so much demand for our services. So mm. we, you don't need to be cheap. So we, we, charge, we charge a lot, a lot more than the most independents do. But a lot of independents are very poorly off. And some of my franchisees have been through some very hard times with this too. Some of them mm. don't get government support. And, and, you know, we had one poor lady um, facing potential eviction and people were giving her, you know, food vouchers and stuff. And we, were, we were lent her some money and said, if you get thrown out, you can come and stay at a conference centre. So it was a real suffering and also yeah. mental suffering too. So I'm really... I'm not against lockdowns. I think sometimes closing down mass things, even churches, which I'm really not happy about, but I recognise the need for that is sensible. But shutting down a mowing contract or somebody cleaning pools or building fences, it makes no sense. It doesn't control infection, but it causes terrible harm. And, yeah. that's like that. and the other thing, too, I'm very, very strongly in favour of vaccination. I, I just think okay. I'm pushing. I don't know if you've heard about it, we've got these. Um, if you see on my shirt here, this is a thing called Jim's Jabs, and we're giving oh. away shirts and 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 caps wow. to people, the hats to people who have been can show they're fully vaccinated, and we've given away got about okay. a thousand lined up to get these things. So <laughs> we just pile them out. So just to try and create this buzz about vaccination. I've actually had when I when I my daughter, one of my daughter, my um, twenty year old daughter, ring me up to say, "Oh, Dad, can I have one of these shirts?" And I said, well, you've got to get vaccinated, Sylvia. So she said, all right, I'll put my first statement, appointment in now. And I said, don't worry, I'll keep one back for you. But you've got to be vaccinated. <laughs> she didn't want to miss out. <laughs> no, well, that, was, that was a great reaction too. So, I, I mean, we've got to encourage you. We've got to get this 70 80% thing done. So I'm getting a bit of flack, actually. The anti-vaxxers don't like me at all. I get these virulent attacks all the time about how I'm taking away people's freedom of freedom of choice and stuff. And I said, well, I'm not telling anybody to get vaccinated. I'm encouraging it, though, because that's the only way we're going to get back to a normal life. I'm sick of these lockdowns, aren't you? Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm that they, so, so let's let's get vaccinated. Vaccination is done. You know, the really strange thing about it is the vaccine, the anti-vaxxers, they tell me that I'm inconsistent because I'm, I'm against the, the severity of the lockdowns, but I'm also 
in favour of vaccination, and that's like it's an opposite to them. Mm. Well, to me, if you're an anti-vaxxer, you're in favour of lockdowns because the only way to get out of lockdowns is to get people vaccinated. So when you're saying don't get vaccinated, don't, don't, don't go and get vaccinated and try and persuade everybody, what you're saying is I love these lockdowns. Let them go on forever. This is fantastic. <laughs> That's what they're saying, which to me is a little bit contradictory. What, what, what do you think of the Christian world, our, that church world that, that, that we find ourselves in and the way that a lot of Christians have tagged things like the end times or the mark of the beast or these kinds of things to uh, COVID lockdowns, vaccinations, you know, the conspiracy theories that, that have really taken rise during this, this season. What, what, what's your take on all of that? Well, I'll tell you what Jesus said. He said, we don't know when it's coming. Mm. We just don't know. And, and there's things that Paul wrote suggest that he thought it was coming very quickly. And this was, this was, you know, 2000 years ago. So he thought it was instantaneous. The fact is you don't mm. know. But what Jesus said makes good sense to me. He said, be ready. It's going to come. Yeah. Don't know when. Be ready. To try and pick the time to me is a fool's errand. They've been trying for 2,000 years and nobody's got it right. So what you've yeah. got to do is live every day of your life in a way that if Jesus comes back tomorrow, you're ready for it. That, that's my mm. view. Yeah, great, great. And and can I ask you a bit more about Jim's group um, and the journey, the history how did you, as a as a leader, uh, what I try to do in this podcast is pull out lessons for people. So how did you as a leader learn along the journey? Was there any moments where you really had to learn new skills? We had to really, I'm sure it's been quite a journey going from a young younger man starting a business to where you are today. What, what, what have you learned along the way? Well, Caleb, I think my, you describe my way of learning things as making one colossal blunder and mistake after another, <laughs> doing everything wrong, and then working out, trying to work out what you've done wrong and trying to fix it. I, I, I don't know. I've made so many mistakes, even in the past few years, that you, you would I, enough. It would fit most people's entire lifetime with the mistakes that I've made. Look, there's one very simple approach that I have to business. And that says that you're never good enough, that every day, every single day of my life, and I really mean that with no exaggeration, I'm asking myself the question, when, how can I do it better? How can I improve? There wouldn't mm. be one day in the past 30 years that I haven't asked myself that question, 30, 40 years, whatever it is, how can I do it better? I'm obsessive about it. I go through, every day I go through all the poor, the complaints, every poor ranked survey, about one in three of our clients respond to a survey, which has been hugely helpful to us. It's been, I think the major reason we've been able to improve our customer service so much and get so many more leads lately. Um, right. I go through every single low rated survey where there's some sort of comment and look at it and I mark it down as a complaint or not and then follow it up and so forth. I do personally with clients that get complaint and don't get fixed up by the franchisor. Um, mm. And then we're developing software and ideas on how to solve that and how to do it and how do I teach people better? And, and then looking mm. at how we recruit people better, how we can hold them better, what can we, what can we do to make it more attractive to them to stay with us? And, and mm. You know, just, just we're spending something like five, six million dollars a year on software development right now, and I'm involved wow. in that all the time. How can we actually use this to to improve what we do to make it more efficient? It's 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 just obsessional. And again, this this book um, by James Dyson called Invention is is fantastic. The same way, this is the guy that developed the cyclonic vacuum cleaner. It's one he's most famous for. But you can see it. You go into the um, dryers and you see these these um, air blade dryers in, in, in public washrooms. He does those too. The thing about this guy is he, he was, he had terrible struggles for a long, long time and trying to get his inventions working. And then he got this, this cyclonic vacuum cleaner, which eventually took off after so many problems and issues. And he was almost broke for, for like a couple of decades. But what he has is an obsessional attitude towards improving what he does mm. all the time he just does model after model after model never satisfied never happy always trying to improve it he's now mm. you know multi multi billionaire he's the fourth richest man in in the uk i've heard and i, I wow. hugely admire him i think he's a fantastic guy i really really admire james dyson and i have for years too 
Mm. Um, so it's, the ongoing, it's, ongoing improvement. Yeah. The, the problem people have is that is that they, they tend to... There's a lot of defensiveness about people. They want to think that what they do is good. And, and to be good, I think what you've got to do, look at yourself and say, what I do is bad and it needs to improve. Mm. And, and so I, I, I seek out comments all the time. Any franchise, you can write to me and they can complain about something about the system. And, and a lot of the time I don't listen because they're complaining that the system is too tough in terms of complaints and stuff. But often they have valid points too. And then we use that to... to um, we use that to to improve what we do. Just as an example, last week we put out an appeal for um, well, we put out an appeal, appeal last newsletter for people to come up with ways to improve Jim's jobs, which is our um, it's our program for franchisees um, to help them run their businesses more efficiently. And this one um, guy rang back. This is a ten year veteran who's just started using it. This is new program. And what I'd said is that if you can think of an idea that makes the system easier to use, not just an added feature, but easier to use, I'll give you a month's free fees. Well, this guy's worth seven ideas. He's got seven months free fees. Oh, wow. I said, I'd like you to talk to some of my peers about what you can do to help us with the design process. So this is a user, a highly experienced user who is you know, he's been with us more than 10 years and he's just getting to, to, to grips with this program and he's come up with all these great ideas about how to improve things, even little simple things like not putting a, uh, not, not allowing for the possibility that you don't have GST, which some of our franchisees don't, not registered mm. for GST. So, and there was a whole lot of other ideas, things that just were a bit, would be simpler and easy to use. So that, that listening thing, Everybody can tell me. You know, I love books, and you probably recognize that too. Yeah. I listen or read probably two or three books a week. When I'm working on my farm or driving or exercising, I'm always listening to a talking book. Yeah. And I'm getting so many ideas all the time. How can I improve? How can I do this better? It's just boring. It's not all about business. A lot of it's about economics and public policy and, and biography, history, all kinds of things. But just always ideas, ideas, ideas. How can you improve? And that, that's the relentless desire to do better all the time. And the big difference in business, I've found, is not people who are good at what they do and people who are not good at what they do. The difference is between people who look at what they do and say, I'm so good, mm. um, I'm not going to change because I'm doing the right thing. If anything goes wrong, it's your system, you're at fault. Mm-hmm. And it's people who say, how can I do it better? And it's interesting that some of the most amazing people in Jim's group. And we have some spectacular people I've learned too, so much from, like like Sharon Connell, who runs our dog wash division, and, and Haydar Hussain, who runs cleaning, clean divisions. Brilliant people. They're both really humble. They both mm-hmm. listen all the time. And it's wonderful. I have a conversation with them. You're sparking ideas back and forth, and I'm learning from them, and they're learning from me. And They'll listen to everybody and anything. They always wanted to be better. That, To me, pride is one of the greatest enemies of business success really people who are proud of what they do and they and they don't want to listen and they don't want to be less than anyone else they don't want to admit mistakes i admit mistakes all the time you'd have to because i'm such a fool i make so many of them but you've got to be prepared to look at yourself and say i'm I'm, i've done this wrong yeah that was stupid yeah (laughs) once my wife was running a conference center and and she and and i i took it off her because because i thought um (laughs) You know, we could do a better job some other way. <laughs> and uh, it was a disaster. It was a terrible disaster. She used to get very mad at me, actually. She didn't like me doing it. And then eventually I said to her, you were right. I was wrong. <laughs> Please take it back. And also, not only that, but take over the running of this factory that's also running badly. And you took that and turned that one around. You see, you just have to say, I'm wrong. I was wrong. I made a mistake. So good, Jim. It's, so, it's great to hear that from a, 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 such a successful businessman like yourself. A uh, leader, somebody who's in a position of influence and power, all those things. And uh, you're looking to be humble, looking to improve, uh, looking to serve uh, your franchisees and customers better. I, I just think that's just absolutely fantastic. It's a great leadership lesson. I really appreciate uh, hearing that, hearing that from you. So my next question is more about your faith and how does your Christian faith impact your business or impact what you do day to day? Well, it's the absolute core of everything that 
everything that we do, everything I've told you about, this whole thing about pride, this thing about using money properly, the thing about service to franchisees. And look, in a way, service to franchisees and to clients is a very, it's a good business principle, which everybody should adopt whether they're a Christian or not. But but at the heart of it is, is it's an emotional, it's a moral issue. And even if it wasn't successful, I'd still want to do it. Hmm. And that's, that's the point too. Again, it comes back to, if you put money first, you know, love of money is the source of all evil. And, and, and that's, Jesus was so much aware of that. Jesus was actually quite canny in the business sense. A lot of his stories are very sensible. I, I love the, I love the stories of the gospel. I love the stories about the, the workers and, and, you know, the one about the workers who, somebody who works the entire day and, and, yeah. and, you know, wants to get paid and, and, and describes that sort of situation. And, and, <laughs> I love the way that Jesus spoke. I find it. I find Jesus a lot more easier to relate to than Paul, for example. Paul's an intellectual. And I'm not really intellectual. He's very abstract. And not mm. he doesn't say some great stuff. But to me, I'm I'm, I'm a simple man. I, I I I'm like a one of those Galilean peasants who who listens to the concrete <laughs> stories and the you know the lilies of the field and stuff. That makes sense to me in a way. They, they speak yeah. to me. Some of, these, some of these erudite intellectuals really open my head. I'm just not smart enough. I reckon. <laughs> that's fantastic so how, does, how does it fight well look as i said the core the core values behind what jim's group does and the way i run my business are fundamentally christian i'm not yeah. look i'm not as good a christian as i should be i don't pray as much as i should and stuff i go to church pretty regularly when i can but we always say prayers before meals and things but it's it's more something that, that guides your attitude towards life and to other people mm. and to what what your purpose is and what what are we on earth for to, to yeah. me, we're not on earth to, to just, just to enjoy ourselves. That is not what we're here. We, we have a purpose. God said, you've got a job, Jim. You've got a job. This is what I want you to do. Mm-hmm. And, and the funny thing about it is like, it's like in business. If you, if you chase money first, in my experience, you're going to lot, get a lot less money than if you actually look to what you want to achieve for yourself, for your customers, for your franchisees, employees, whatever. The same thing, happiness is the same kind of thing too. If you go into life and you say, my my primary goal is to be happy, one pretty good prediction is that you won't find much happiness by doing it. Because that is actually, if you ask someone like an alcoholic or a drug user, what is their main purpose in life? That is the most characteristic answer. I want to be happy. So mm. I'm faced with not feeling very good. So what can make me good? Well, having a drink, shooting up on heroin, whatever, taking OxyContin, whatever, whatever you're doing. You're trying to be happy, but you're doing it in a way that goes contrary to the way that we're made. And he said, mm-hmm. to, to me, to me, God is the God is the maker. And, yeah. and, and I just use the analogy that if you were if you if you had a washing machine, let's say you have a let's say it's a Kelvinator. I don't know if they even make them anymore, but you have to come in a washing machine and you want to fix it. Okay. Now, one thing you could do is you go out to your car and you get your 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 um your manual to fix the car, which in my case is Mitsubishi. I, mean, I haven't got a manual, but if I did, I get the and I take it and I try and fix the washing machine. Well, I think you could probably recognize it wouldn't work very well. Why not? Because it's not the maker's manual. Now, if I want to fix my washing machine, which I don't, because I'm mechanically hopeless, my wife actually tends to bang in nails around her house more than me. She's a builder. But <laughs> if I wanted to fix the washing machine, if I really had those skills, what I would do is I'd go to the calculator company and get their manual, and I'd use that to fix my washing machine because it's the maker's mm. manual. Does that make sense? Yes. So to me, the Bible is God's manual. He's the maker. He understands us. He understands how we operate. So if we actually say, well, I'm going to ignore the maker's manual and I'm going to do things my way, so I'm going to be happy. So therefore I'm going to you know, eat a lot of food or I'm going to you know, make a lot of money to make myself feel good and, and, and better than anyone else so I can boast and be proud and shoot up on a hair. All these kinds of stupid things people do to make themselves happy. You're not following the maker's manual. Yeah. Whereas if you actually look at the science, the research on happiness, like I said about money, what makes you happy? Not becoming more prestigious and sort of having a better house, better car, because that's the zero-sum game. It's mm. giving your money away. And the same thing with your life. Um, what they've found is that is that what makes people happy is things like, for example, 
money has relatively little influence. When you get past about 75 grand a year, it doesn't matter a great deal how much money you have, but things that matter are good family life, good relationships, yeah. spirit, spirit of the, 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 the principles of the gospel. What does that do? That's about relationships with you, your family, with others. That's what makes yeah. you happy. Um, yeah. Having a sense of purpose in your life, very strongly associated with happiness. And that mm -hmm. means in, instead of just doing what you feel like doing, you think, what's the right thing to do? Mm. Like, for example, I, I, I'm really lazy and can easily veg out and want to, you know, complete computer games. And I have to tell myself, come on, Jim, you, you can't waste your life. So I've got, to, I've got to do something useful, like work on my book, for example, or, or on, on my research project or one of those things that's good. And, and, and it's not what I want to do right now. But I know that's what will, it's, it's part of God's purpose for my life. And that does make me a very happy man because yeah. I don't happiness first, just as I'm successful in business to the extent that I am. And that's probably exaggerated, actually. I'm a lot more famous than I'm rich, but I'm successful <laughs> in business, making money in business because I don't put the money first. It's the same principle, yeah. isn't it? Fantastic. I, I love it. You mentioned that a lot about money today and not putting it first. And uh, I, I can see just even as you're talking, your, your, your purpose, your passion comes through. And it's so much more than just doing business or having money or just staying on the church and Christianity. Uh, you know, we just did the census recently. And I, I think we're probably all tipping that Christianity is again going to go uh, backwards uh, as far as religion in our country and uh, church attendance is at an all-time low in Australia and in the Western world. Uh, what's your thoughts on where Christianity is at in Australia and how the church is going in when it's in, in the marketplace, so to speak? Yeah, what's interesting to me is that the is that the um, churches that are most strongly embedded in the principles of traditional principles of Christianity are the ones that tend to be doing the best. It's more mm. your fundamentalists and your charismatics and people like that that, that mm. um, are doing well, that have fairly tough line, that basically want you to live a life which is very different from the world. The ones that are saying, well, let's be as much like the world as possible tend to be going dropping like a stone. That, that's one mm. lesson you can draw from it. Um, mm. There's a there's a change of character going on in um, in our society, which is which is to do with wealth and organisation. And it's it's basically what people have always referred to as decadence. Um, it's the same thing that, that destroyed the Roman Empire, and that, that basically wealthy urban elites through history have tended to go downhill and, and lose character. It's it's a change. Um, the decline of Christianity is part of that whole process. It's the loss of the values that support this kind of character that makes the relation. There's kind of a, the way, and this is, this is again going back to biohistory. Um, to me, Christianity is not only the truth, but it's actually what I call a cultural technology. It actually has a code of ethics and of behavior and of values and things like chastity, a very important part of that. Also stuff like fasting and Sabbath keeping and those kind of areas which I must sound terrible at. I work seven days a week. I can't stop, but I know I shouldn't. But the point of it is there's, there's, there's principles in Christianity and also in religions like Islam and Hinduism, Buddhism and the rest, Confucian principles that create a kind of character, which is that disciplined, hardworking character, which is what's the base of civilization. Civilization mm. to me reflects character. That's the mm. fundamental character of the individual, not the big impersonal forces, but the individual character. Mm. What's happening is we're losing that. We're going downhill, and it's it's got to do with wealth and urbanization, and 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 it's part of past line is the decline of traditional cultural technologies like Christianity. Um, in my research project, I'm actually studying that and and looking at it and working out with rats, in actual fact, how it happens and what you can do about it. And we're looking at the epigenetics of it and the micro RNA and all the different things and the pheromones that are associated and working out ways to reverse that. If we can do that, if we can produce a a model that'll re reverse this effect um, and and restore some of this character it would take off very rapidly because it would be an incredibly powerful way of, for individuals to achieve success. Mm. 
um, it would make people more productive. It would help people to be harder working, to be more disciplined, to be better employees, to be better entrepreneurs. It would have tremendous implications for treatment of things like alcoholism and drug addiction. It would help people to overcome those kinds of weaknesses. So I would think if we can develop effective treatments, that would actually have they would spread like wildfire. That they'd, they'd, they'd be it'd be multi-trillion dollar industry if we could do it. And I mm. think we will. I think we will. Mm. Um, the point about that is, and this is a long-winded way of saying about it, if you manage to reverse this process of decadence, what that will do is bring about a revival of Christianity. Mm. It will actually change our character, our personality in a way that makes us more receptive to the gospel. And I think mm. that's what's likely to happen. Now, that not just Christianity, of course, but it will also help to revive Judaism, for example, and, and other kinds of such beliefs. So, so are you kind just to help me understand, Jim? So, you're kind of saying there. It sounds like your hypothesis is along the lines of character being, I suppose, the affairs of the human heart uh, mm. have an impact on how civilizations work um, yeah. at, at, at a greater level, and maybe the rise and fall of civilizations is actually tied to the individual's yeah. character. Is is, is, am I, is it along those yeah, lines? Basically, everything reflects character. The economy politics reflects character see mm. you go into somewhere like like what's happened in afghanistan recently all right now 20 years ago when they were talking about invading afghanistan uh, uh, sorry uh, that was uh, iraq at that time i was furious i said this is a terrible idea because what you're doing is you're looking at a nasty dictator and you're thinking if i remove the dictator i'll have a liberal democracy mm. and i said no that won't happen because if you have because the, the government of Iraq and Af Afghanistan, for that matter, reflects the character of the people. They respond mm. to a certain kind of very harsh authority. It's the nature of people like that. Mm. If you get rid of a violent and vicious dictator, you'll get either civil war or you'll get an even more vicious re regime appearing, which is pretty well what happened with, with mm. you know, decades of civil war and also ISIS and everything else. I had a big argument with my oldest son, actually, who was very patriotic, which I admire, but I see he was really upset at me. And I said, no, this will be such a disaster. And the same thing with Afghanistan. You went in, yeah, get rid of Osama bin Laden, but then hand it over to the Northern Alliance. Don't try and run this country. You can't do it because you can't impose a regime on people that haven't got the right character. Yeah. So everything that happens, people think it's political forces and economic forces and, 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 and laws and all these institutions. But no, character is the core of everything. Mm. And character is the, is the bedrock. And what's happening in the West is we're losing this character that's the basis of democracy and, and so forth. So it just happened recently with the, um, with the election of Joe Biden. And I'm normally on the conservative side of politics, but I must say I thought Trump was a horrible man and I'm glad he's gone. But the fact mm. of the matter is what's most alarming about this is that you had this mob invading Congress and so many people actually approve of that. That, to me, mm. is really frightening more than anything. And, you know, mm. the majority of Republican voters apparently feel that the election was stolen. They won't accept what was obviously a fair election. And that is really a concern. That is the same kind of change of character that happened in the late Roman Republic. When, mm. for example, Sulla marched on Rome, um, the, the magistrates come out, you know, Sulla was the first man to march with an army on Rome, but magistrates come out and they said, stop. And all but two of his legates re refused to go with him. Mm. Uh, but, but the army went in and they, they took over the city and they did all kinds of things which he thought was restoring the, the Republic, but, you know, killed a lot of people and stuff. Now, a few decades later, Caesar did the same thing and all of his legates followed him and then he became the, the dictator and then that was the end of the Republic. Mm. Because when people's loyalties change from, from, from the impersonal principles of law and democratic institutions towards loyalty to a person, mm. that is part of the process of decline. And, it's, mm -hmm. and that's what drives it. It's not the ambition of individuals because they'll take advantage. It's the attitude of ordinary people. Who do I follow? Do I follow the law? Do I follow the principles of democracy and of electoral colleges and this kind of system, or do I follow the person that I want, that I believe in? And and why do you think there's such a rise at the moment in this um, 
I suppose this celebrity culture maybe in our civilization, this following people, this obsession with with people like Trumps or political leaders, even at the moment, I know it's very difficult living through COVID here in Victoria, but even this obsession that Daniel Andrews is either the hero and the saviour or is the villain and the devil, like I, I, I think people take these things so personally um, but but why do you think there is such an obsession with following a particular person rather than following maybe the enduring principles that you're talking about? The, the character behind civilization, the kind of character, I call it high C, which is C for civilization, C for control, C for, which is control of children, control of impulses and so forth. The nature of high C is that you have an impersonal relationship like you're in, you're you're related to the the democratic systems to the system of parliament the system of elections to, to rule by law these are impersonal ideas that's that's what causes civilizations to be great like ours has been when you have this process of decadence your loyalties become more personal they become loyalties to an individual so it's a fundamental change of character in ordinary men and women that's what's driving this thing and that's that's fundamentally what it is it's not the great people themselves it's the people who you choose to follow so for example um one of the things that interests me very much is periods of chaos like the wars of the roses in 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 england in the in the 1450s or, or the um in the late 15th century or, or the the warlord area in china you understand what's going on then now people always study the leaders they say the great the great forces are, are um the great, the great leaders are sort of, they're greedy for power and that causes all these problems, but it's, that's not the reason at all. Mm. You look at a case like the Battle of Bosworth Field where, where Henry the um, Seventh, or who became Henry the Seventh, defeated Richard the Third. What caused that battle to happen, to get decided by it was, was, was a guy called Lord Stanley who was married to um, Henry's mother. And they never had any children, but but you know, was, and and he was known as being as being you know iffy as to which side he'd go on. In actual fact, uh, Richard the King had his son as a as a hostage, and he said, "If you don't join my side, I'll kill your son." Wow. And in the end, Stanley decided to join Henry, and that's what made the battle. That's what decided the battle, and Richard was killed. And that's the beginning of the Tudors. And the beginning, actually, Henry had a remarkably weak right to the throne. I mean, who would have thought? That this massive Tudor dynasty would come out of that, this, this really feeble, pathetic claim. It was weaker than almost anybody else. It must have been about twenty people had better rights to the throne than he did, but he won, and he won because Lord Stanley changed his mind. And the point of it is, nobody at any side suggested that any of Henry of, of Stanley's men would care about anything except what Stanley wanted. They just followed him. Mm. So that's why. That attitude that says I am loyalty to a, loyal to a person is what caused that chaos to happen. As soon as you get, and the same thing with, with the Earl of Warwick, for example, who was the one that, that backed the Yorkists and got Edward the Fourth on the throne. That was Richard's brother. He he um, York backed him, and then and, and then so the, sorry Warwick backed him and, and helped him to get to the throne. He was a really powerful, was the biggest landowner in England, and then he changed his mind because he wasn't getting what he wanted. So he decided to back the Lancastrian king that he just deposed, and he put mm. him back on the throne. And Edward Thread, and then Edward came back, and then Warwick was killed, and so forth. But again, it was the fact that he could change sides like that, and everybody would follow him. And it's, wow. there's a wonderful story about the the warlord area in China called Warlord Politics by a guy called Pai, which talks about the attitudes of the people during the warlord area in, in China, which was like in the 1920s. And it's the same. Thing that arose, the actual loyalties of the soldiers were all towards the their, their personal commander, and that person mm. was therefore the warlord, and that was why the system was so chaotic. Mm. And there's a difference. In, actually, if you look at the propaganda of the different parties in that period, like the the there's the warlord um, propaganda, all to do with loyalty and Confucian values and stuff like that. And then you have look the the, the communists, and they're very emotionally very much in favor of the larger cause much more impersonal and the nationalists were in between mm. so you can actually look at the, the character of the people who were in those particular groups and they were quite different and so th this is what to me to me every like politics is is like some some froth on the surface of the sea 
Mm. And the waves going up and down, you think, well, the froth, what, no, it's not. The waves themselves are driving it. The froth's just, just on the surface. Yeah, or, yeah. Or a boat that rises and falls with the waves. It's not the boat that's doing it. It's the waves that you've got to look at. The mm. waves are the people, the character of the individuals and everything in our society, everything we want to understand about economic development and everything else depends on the character of individual people, which is a very mm. Christian idea if you think about it. You know, it is, not, it is. We don't believe as Christians in, 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 in personal forces. No, we believe in the, in the individual spirit, yeah. the individual character as being what matters. That's what the Bible is about. Yes, yes. I was just about to say that. It's a very Christian idea. It's exactly what I was thinking because it is about uh, the affairs of the human heart, and that's what we believe as Christians, that, that, that God goes beyond politics, beyond these outer things, uh, and really starts with the individual uh, in, in the human heart. So, so and it's great to hear a bit of your uh, expertise on history here. I understand that your PhD is in history and uh, I love history, absolutely love it. I love the intersection of history and things like Christianity and all these kind of things. What, but what, what, what do you so see in this? Not just about history. The, the part of the book that I've been thoroughly working on lately is all about lemmings. And, and cycles okay. of population cycles of lemmings, which is very relevant to human history. So it's it's the biology of history that I'm concerned about. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. And 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 what do you? I was going to ask along those lines. What what do you think the future looks like for Western civilization? Like, what do you have any thoughts there? Well, on that present course, very bad. We're in a process of classic civilization decline. We're, we're pretty much like the Roman Republic was, you know, beginning of the first century. Um, BC, when people like Sulla were just on the horizon. Um, mm -hmm. we're, in a, we're in a classic process of decline. Um, it's going to be probably, it will probably be faster than, than what happened there because we're so much wealthier. I mean, people in the late Roman Republic would riot for, 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 because bread was too dear and they were hungry. The biggest mm -hmm. problem we have now is obesity. And, and so the plentiful food is what drives this process as well as the loss of these traditional values. So we're headed in a really, really, really bad direction. But I believe that we can change this. And, and the thing that gives me the greatest confidence is the incredible advances in, in biotechnology over the previous decade, especially um, things like the, the, the um, development of the human genome and the ability to actually make changes. People are very concerned about the genetic changes that you can be made to the genome. The biggest, um, the biggest excitement to me is in the epigenetic changes the changes is the way that I don't know if you understand epigenetics, but basically you, your, your genetic code is like a, a template. And what happens is that genes, which are just elements of DNA, actually what they do is they spit out a protein, which is often something like a micro RNA, like a messenger that does certain things. Okay. Now that's, that's fixed by heredity. That's fixed. Okay. You can't change it except by random genetic mutation, which takes a long time. And we are working out ways to change it otherwise in a direct sort of way but what happens to these things is is these little genes have little things like taps that can turn off like a what's called a methyl group or a histone or something like that so they can turn them off or turns them on so and that and that causes dramatic changes in all kinds of things like like character in particular but also health also to do with um, i'm sure most forms of mental illness all kinds of things are all to do with with epigenetics it's, it's upon the gene and mm -hmm. the it's what they're doing with, with, with systems like, like understanding these, these, these microRNAs and so forth is working at how to target particular genes and turn them on or off. That is an amazing technology. But what it means yeah, is well. theoretically, you could go to somebody who was hopeless drug addicts, you know, hopelessly demoralized, and you could give them an injection and, and with, with their consent. But I'm not talking about any, any social engineering. I'm just talking about a medical treatment. Mm -hmm. And and they have this injection and they get a bit of reorientation and stuff and they go home and they live an incredibly productive, happy life and they don't want drugs anymore. And, mm. and, and, and people who are hopeless gamblers, people who are, who are violent, people who are philanderous and so forth, all kinds of, to, what, to my mind, character flaws. If people want to, they can actually just have them wiped out completely. Mm. And, and poverty itself. You can change people's character in a way that makes them want to work hard and want to get ahead and be better family members and better parents and so forth. And you could change anything and you could just by asking them what they want to be. And people want to be 
living successful, productive lives. So if we develop this technology, and I'm very optimistic we will in the next you know, two or three years even, then it'll it'll spread like wildfire and it'll have dramatic effect on the future. It'll it'll change the whole history of the human race in a way that's mm. unimaginable. Unimaginable that's beyond anything we could possibly imagine. And and you're talking about development of, of relief of poverty in the third world. I mean mm. it could happen in a generation. Mm. Mm. The whole world could be prosperous. You talk about greenhouse gases and so forth and and, and how we can control global warming, which I think is a real real threat. Um, technology is the key to that. But what if you had people who are really amazingly good at technology, so many of them, suddenly we'd have so much energy, we wouldn't need to burn fossil fuels. We could suck them out of the atmosphere to make fuel with. You could do amazing things with the right technology. And all that depends on having the right people with the right mm. attitudes and the right character. So I, mm. we're, in a, we're in a terrible state right now. We're heading in a very, very bad direction. But I think we can change it. I think we can reverse it. And I believe that's what will happen. Amazing. It's amazing. Some of the stuff's a little bit over my head. I did try to do my research before coming into this uh, <laughs> podcast, but it's definitely a new okay. area for me. I make, I make it out that I understand more than I do. I am no way, I'm not a biological scientist. I can talk about methyl groups and histones and stuff and microRNA, and I vaguely understand what they're about, but I have a research team that I talk to every two weeks on a Friday morning. We have a, a hookup and I've got these things going and I and ask them and they're, they're the experts, not me. I just, yeah. I just provide the money. But anyway. I think it's, I think it's fascinating, though, mate. And I think what you're touching on there, uh, it sounds, it sounds phenomenal. And what I do understand is definitely at that, as a pastor, is that level of character, the level of the human heart, and and totally agree with you. That's where things need to be happening. Uh, that's where uh, society uh, has its best chance. It, you know, it comes back to that Solzhenitsyn idea, doesn't it, of the. Uh, the moral radar running through every human heart and that's where right or wrong uh really begins and what what, what do you maybe our final question but just to get back to the stuff about our culture and and affluence uh where, where do you really see affluence corrupting people because for me that is something that i often think about you mentioned earlier uh about the comments even in the bible about wealth uh, I am very aware of my own affluence and the, the incredible blessing that I have in this country, even to live through a pandemic and uh, still have money and a home and security. And uh, you know, but, but where do you see affluence really, really causing a problem? Why does it affect people's character so much? Um, it gets back to the biology and, and the base of the idea behind biohistory is that um, this character we're talking about, which is which is what makes civilization. There's things like like you know strong monogamous family bonds and hard work and enterprise and democracy and stuff. Um, basically, it's 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 a it's a biological. It's the it's the it's the use of a biological system that was originally evolved. And I'm an evolutionist to adapt animals to limited food supply. So, mm -hmm. for example, if you talk about someone like a gibbon, for example, which is an animal that lives in, it's an ape that lives in the forests of Southeast Asia, um, they actually have a, a, a family structure which is very similar to that of, 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 you know, humans in Western society. They are strictly monogamous. They, they have territories mm -hmm. like we have our, you know, houses with our quarter acre blocks and so forth. Um, spend a lot of time on their children. They're very hardworking. They, they, they actually, they're always, you know, going around trying to find, you know, you know, different food to eat. They 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 defend their territories very rigorously. They they don't have sexual relations until they're actually in a strong pair bond. So they're actually very much like a traditional Christian family <laughs> ideal. Um, they're adapted to an environment where food is chronically limited, and it's very different from an animal like a baboon, for example, that lives in the um, savanna of, of Africa. And where they where they have um, promiscuous mating systems, for example, and, and and large bonds of people and so forth, and that's that's more adapted to a environment where food is generally plentiful, but sometimes really really short, and as they start. So, what happens is when you have an animal that is in a situation where food becomes relatively short, they shift towards this food restricted type of behaviour. It's, it's, a, it's a biochemical reaction. It does things like, for example, it drops the levels of um, testosterone and leptin, as, as an example. 
um, and it does certain other things too. We're looking at the physiology and it changes the way the amygdala functions, which is part of the, the midbrain and, and those kinds of areas. Um, so it's a biological reaction to food shortage. Now, what actually makes civilization is that we've hijacked this mechanism. And this is where the principles of, the, of, of religions, these cultural technologies come about. They actually work out ways of making them artificially great so that people act as if they're hungry even when they aren't. And a perfect mm -hmm. example of that is chastity, the idea mm -hmm. that you shouldn't have sex with anybody until you're married to them. Um, there have been done experiments on rats, for example, which, which found that if you have a rat that's given access to a female um, at, around the age of puberty, their actual um, character is extremely different in later life. They, they're, they're much lower levels of testosterone, which in humans is associated with things like crime and unemployment and all kinds of things, um, drug addiction, all, all high testosterone kind of things. So by having a rat by not allowing it to have sex with another rat at that crucial age in, in their adolescence, it actually changes their character. Now, interesting thing is um, Alfred Kinsey, you probably heard of, he did studies of major studies yeah. on sexual behavior in the human and male and female back in the late 40s, early 50s. Um, his whole thesis was actually all about how sex is great and we should do more and more of it. And he was a great mm -hmm. apostle for that. But the interesting mm -hmm. thing is when you have a look at his studies themselves, at the statistics, ignore the, the gloss he put on it, he had some really interesting findings. And one of the things that you can get from this, which I quote in Biohistory, is that one of the best indicators of how well successful a man is going to be in life, in education and in income, is how many nocturnal, what proportion of his sexual outlet in, in his adolescent years is nocturnal emissions. The more nocturnal emissions he has, the more likely he is to be successful. Because what matters is that if you restrict sexual activity at a very young age, you create this character, this, this disciplined, hardworking, enterprising kind of character, which is what's really, really good for being successful in our modern world. Mm. So this, this is what, where it all amounts to. And, and, and wealth is the same sort of thing. I mean, one of the things that I... I'm very focused on is is health. Now that's just not for its own sake, but it's also a matter of character. Fasting is very good for you. So, mm. for example, I'm at the moment I'm quite hungry because I don't eat breakfast. I won't eat anything mm. for about 16, 17 hours a day. So, it's good for your health, but it's also good for your character. It just creates mm. this kind of what I call a high C character, which is a discipline mm. sort of character. Why fasting has been so much part of traditional Christianity, and I think we miss out on that too. Yes. Yes, yeah, for sure. And and how how do you how, how do you reconcile how do you reconcile your um, beliefs in Christianity with uh, ev evolution, as you mentioned before, being an evolutionist? Um, talk to me about that. That's interesting. Well, I believe that um, God created everything. I, I believe that God is the creator. He's the creator. He's the designer. The, the only difference I have, and I actually go to a fundamentalist church. I sat to a whole sermon. <laughs> A couple of months back about evolution or how evolution is a terrible idea. Yeah. But the fact of the matter is, I believe God is the designer. Where I disagree with the fundamentalists, you might say, is, is exactly when it happened. They would say six and a half thousand years. I'd say, well, about 13.7 billion. And that's for yeah. this universe. Too. So I, yeah. I don't have any problems with it. I mean, the Pope is an evolutionist. I think he's a good man. So, uh, <laughs> so I understand. I, I seriously understand, and one reason we go to an evolution a creationist church is because they are more hardline on on fundamental moral issues. And the problem with the problem with if you start unpicking the Bible and you say, well, let's let's discard Genesis, then you say, well, let's discard teachings about chastity or, or about homosexuality, all kinds of things like that. So, mm -hmm. um, it's it's a very dangerous thing. It's like the loose leaf Bible idea. You know, you can just take out sections that you don't agree with and leave the ones in that you do. And once you do that, you actually you actually are not following the maker's manual, are you? You're actually and, and sex is a perfect example. Hey, yeah, let's all be free and sex is all great and stuff. Well, no, it isn't because it has effects on character, especially when you're young, especially in those crucial years of, of late, late adolescence, um, early mm. adulthood. So mm. I understand why they do it. And, and appreciate it, but to me, it's impossible to believe because this is, uh, the evidence is too overwhelmingly powerful that the, the, the evolution is, is, a, is a brilliant theory. Um, mm -hmm. 
Great. That's, that's really interesting. God made really it. God made it. God did it. That's that's where I sunder a fundamentalist. That's why I'd rather go to a fundamentalist church, mm. even if they have rather strange beliefs in my terms about history, uh, yeah. compared with one that's more liberal that that, that that tends to say, "Hey, what's the world thinking? Let's follow them." Yeah, yeah. I think you've got a great ability, Jim, to uh, to hold different ideas and to uh, hold things well. And uh, but then I love the fact that you're a straight shooter. You're happy to share what you think and uh, I really enjoyed the podcast today. We've covered a phenomenal amount of ground from uh, the history of Jim's uh, mowing and Jim's group and your faith and your business and uh, your, your history, bio history, character, uh, civilizations. It's just been a really wild ride, mate. And I just want to say a big thank you for making the time uh, to come on and uh, share with us some of your insights, some of your stories. So, so thank you very much. Yeah, you're welcome. It's great. It's great to talk about things from a Christian perspective. I don't get enough of an opportunity. Uh, these <laughs> things come out not as strong as I like, and, and I think what what I can present to you is a lot re, re, closer to what really is going on than, than something. Fantastic. Well, we should talk again, mate. I'd love to. Anything about God and Christianity and how it intersects, especially with culture, business, all these things, is really a passion of mine. So, sounds like you're similar, which is great. Thank you very much. I trust you were impacted by that leadership lessons podcast. I would love to hear your thoughts about today's podcast. Please comment down below and please review the podcast and share it with a friend. Doing this inspires us and helps others to find the podcast. See you next time.